Welcome to episode 27 of History of the Marine Corps, and then there were two. Our last episode discussed the end of the Penobscot Expedition. We covered the actions by military leaders that arguably cost Massachusetts their entire fleet and lost a battle that should have been an easy victory for the Americans. This episode will dig into some of the consequences that battle had on Continental Marines, specifically the dwindling enlistment numbers for Marines and leadership's reluctance to launch another full-scale amphibious landing. We'll conclude with the two remaining detachments of Marines fighting in the American Revolution. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Marines performed exceptionally well during 1779, but the hesitation of military leaders during the Penobscot expedition caused doubt in future activities. Their mission slowly started to change, and aggressiveness started to decline. Instead of conducting amphibious landings, Marines were beginning to get assigned as prison guards. Even though the Penobscot expedition was a catastrophe, the United States was still capturing British naval prisoners and prisons were running out of space quickly. Congress directed the Marine Committee to confine prisoners to vessels. A prison ship was found with relative ease. However, supplying a guard force to watch the prisoners was a different story. On August 7, 1779, the Navy Board ordered Major Samuel Nicholas to raise a company of Marines in Philadelphia. The company would comprise of 50 Marines and include officers and non-commissioned officers. Nicholas asked Robert Mullen to help him with this mission, but both men had a hard time finding Marines to fulfill this duty. By the end of the month, Mullen only received 28 Marines. Each man was paid $100 to $200 and given a uniform. Nicholas and Mullen were used to men leaving as soon as they got paid, so every recruit was ordered on board the vessel immediately to avoid desertion. Mullen continued to enlist suitable men for this mission and recruited out of his quarters in Tun Tavern. He was able to bring on 24 additional men, but by mid-October, 28 of the 52 Marines deserted. To make it worse, nearly half of the remaining men were sick or died. He was only able to find 15 men for service. With the inability to recruit the appropriate number of men, Congress ordered the prison ship discharged from service on November 12th. The 15 Marines who stayed were paid off, and Samuel Nicholas and Robert Mullen temporarily retired from the Marine Corps and moved back home to enjoy a private life. With large-scale amphibious landing operations no longer part of the strategy, Marines began to get frustrated with the idleness and requested discharges. Samuel Gamage received approval for his release for illness contracted in service, and Samuel Pritchard received support because of a desire to fight elsewhere. Pritchard's decision wasn't unique and should have been a red flag to leadership. He and multiple other Marines signed up for a specific reason. They wanted to fight and still supported America's cause. They were resigning from the Marine Corps to join other units on the battlefront. Recruiting was already a challenge, but the continued drama between military officers made matters worse. 
French Captain Pierre Landis commanded the frigate Alliance. Having a French officer in charge rubbed American officers the wrong way, and they refused to sail under his command. Landis had a detested approach to deal with the uncooperative American officers, and he requested the replacement of multiple people. Marine Captain Matthew Park was transparent with his position. He warned him that if one American officer on board the Alliance was replaced, he would need to find a replacement for them all. This threat was enough for Landis to rescind his request, but the tensions remained high for the next year until he was replaced. Scuttlebutt started to spread about Landis' poor treatment towards his crew, and this caused a further decline in enlistment numbers. British prisoners were recruited and served as Continental Marines to compensate for the shortfall. Using British prisoners of war as new American recruits had some problems. During a trip across the Atlantic, Americans discovered a mutiny among the English and the Irish. Every man was ordered on deck while their belongings searched down below. They searched for weapons, correspondence, and any evidence of the scheme, but nothing was found. A court of inquiry was held to interrogate the suspected mutineers. Marine Sergeant William Murray was one of the ringleaders questioned. He initially denied all allegations about a mutiny, but would later withdraw his testimony. He stated that he, John Savage, who was a master at arms, and 70 other men planned to take the ship and sail her to either Ireland or England. The plans were elaborate and they included how they would take control of the vessel and the punishment American officers would suffer. Here is a testimony from Sergeant Murray. They were to divide themselves into four divisions. The first to take the magazine, the remaining three at the same time to force the cabin, ward room, and quarter deck. Then to take command of the arms chest, and in case of opposition, they were to point the forecastle guns aft and fire them the guns being nine-pounders and all loaded. The party that was to go to the magazine were to kill the gunner, carpenter, and boatswain. The other punishments for the other officers and French gentlemen were thus. Captain Landis was to be put in irons and sent in the cutter, without victuals or drink. The lieutenants were to walk overboard on a plank from the shipside, unless they would take charge of her and navigate the ship into England, the marine officers and the doctor were to be hanged, quartered, and hove overboard. The sailing master was to be tied up to the mizzenmast, scarified all over, cut to pieces, and hove overboard. This ruthless testimony was enough to imprison 38 mutineers, and they were guarded by more than enough marines mounted above the frigate. John Paul Jones would face similar problems on board his ship, the Bonhomme Richard. To compensate for recruiting difficulties, Paul enlisted men outside of the United States. He recruited British prisoners and French soldiers to serve on board as Marines. The French and the British already had a long history of conflict, and allowing them to serve in a war supporting America's independence was nothing but trouble. Marines and sailors fought constantly, physically fought. He also discovered an emerging mutiny between the British prisoners who were now serving as Marines. Quartermaster Robert Towers was one of the ringleaders, and he received 250 lashes on his bare back 
with the Cat of Nine Tails. Jones eventually requested the other hundred British prisoners discharged due to their untrustworthiness. With most of his Marines gone, Jones revisited his recruiting strategy, and he enlisted American prisoners of war. With the full crew again, Jones met up with a few other American ships, and the squadron sailed for Flamborough Head in England. Shortly after their departure, they spotted British ships in the distance. Jones started to prepare for a fight, and he gave the command to form a line of battle, but the three other vessels ignored his orders. The Alliance sailed off to engage one of the British ships by herself. The Palace did the same, and the Vengeance just sailed in circles and refused to attack. Without much of an option, Jones and his crew prepared for battle. Marines took positions on the upper deck, gun deck, and powder magazine. They also climbed the main top, foretop, and mizzen top to pick off British soldiers easily. They were given swivels, cohorns, blunderbusses, and muskets in order to clear the enemy ship tops before engaging the men on the decks. At night, the battle began. As Jones closed in, the captain of the Serapis shouted, What ship is that? Someone from the Richard replied, Come a little nearer and I will tell you. The captain of the Serapis followed up with another question, asking what type of cargo the ship was carrying. The Richard responded, Round grape and double-headed shot. After that reply, both ships immediately opened fire at each other. During the first or second volleys by Jones, three of his 18-pound cannons exploded, killing most of the men manning the cannons. It was a difficult battle, and both ships attempted to outmaneuver each other. The Serapis had mobility, and she was able to gain the advantage several times. Jones thought the best option was to close with the Serapis instead of continuing to exchange cannon fire. He rammed into the British ship and tried to board. The British soldiers and Marines were tough and they repelled the attacking Americans. The Serapis tried the same, but her crew was pushed back by the Continental Marines on board the Richard. Both ships attempted to board multiple times. Serapis's bowsprit came over the Richard's mizzenmast, and Jones entangled the two ships together. They were so close that the cannons of both vessels were touching the opponent's side. Jones realized that the only way to win this battle is with his marines. The enemy's rigging needed to be disabled, and her crew killed by musket fire and hand grenades. The British captain ordered grappling hooks cut, but the Continental Marines' position on the top masts were accurate and they were able to pick off the sailors and Royal Marines. Except for two nine-pound cannons, all other cannons on board the Richard were destroyed or unmanned. One of Jones's officers, French Lieutenant Colonel Paul de Chamillard, abandoned his post, and some of his men followed his retreat. The Marines were his last resort at victory. With superior marksmanship, the Continental Marines were able to pick off the enemy's tops, and began firing at men on the deck. During this battle, the Vengeance continued to circle at a distance, never helping the Bonhomme Richard. The Alliance caused more harm than good by raking the Richard, killing multiple sailors, and causing more to scatter from the shots. The Alliance would also fire several shots into Richard's port quarter, not once, but twice, killing many of Jones's best men. 
Shots from the Alliance caused a leak in the ship and multiple fires. After a few more shots and more hand grenades lobbed at the Serapis, the four-hour battle was over and she surrendered. The British captain handed his sword to Jones and the two captains headed to the cabin for a glass of wine. Casualties were heavy. 150 Americans died and more than 300 were wounded. The British lost 100 men as well, and both ships were in horrendous condition. For two nights, survivors on board the Richard tried their best to make repairs, but there was too much damage. The fires alone weren't entirely extinguished until 1000 the next day. The ship would eventually sink. Captain Pierre Landis would face the consequences of his action during this battle. Many officers in the squadron brought charges against him, and he was ordered to Paris by Benjamin Franklin on October 15th. A trial was held, and the majority of officers confirmed Landis' behavior. Benjamin Franklin temporarily relieved him of his command, and Jones took control of the alliance. At first, the crew didn't seem to mind the change of leadership, but men started to get impatient when prize money wasn't issued. Estimates were drawn up, but the crew did not receive payment. Landis used this opportunity to regain control of the Alliance, and he was able to convince most men to side with him by charging Jones with neglect of their prize money. 115 officers and enlisted addressed a letter to Benjamin Franklin, stating they would not raise anchor until their wages and prize money provided to them. Until then, the crew of the ship restored Landis as captain. However, there were a few who refused to sign. Marine Captain Matthew Park was one of those men, along with Marine Lieutenant James Warren. Landis seized control of the Alliance that afternoon, and he sent men who refused to join him to shore. Jones took a more political route, and instead of storming the ship, he traveled to Paris to speak with Franklin. Both men pleaded to the local government for help, and the French ordered a boom across the only possible exit. They also ordered batteries to fire on the ship if she attempted to pass. French naval vessels received similar orders, and French marines prepared to board the Alliance if needed. Jones tried one last time to convince Landis to surrender. Captain Park was selected to deliver this message. Facing superior firepower and without much of an option, Landis gave up. However, he would remain in command of the Alliance and sail her towards America. But before he left, he required everyone on board the ship to take an oath to defend the captain no matter what. He imprisoned anyone on board the ships that refused to take the oath or disobeyed him. Captain Park was one of the few who refused to take the oath, and he was arrested and thrown in prison for 11 days. Landis's decisions were increasingly unreasonable, and violent fights would break out for absurd issues. Finally, the crew revolted on August 11th. When the ship pulled into Boston, the Navy board ordered Captain John Barry to relieve Landis, but he refused to resign. Three well-built Marines had to drag him off the ship, literally fighting and cursing the whole time. Landis faced a court-martial for his behavior, and even his friends testified that he was crazy. He was found guilty and rendered incapable of serving again in the Continental Navy. At this time, Marines only served on board five ships, and that number would continue to fall quickly.
The Saratoga was one of those ships, and she had the mission of escorting a merchant fleet to France. During the voyage, the Saratoga spotted two enemy merchantmen in the distance and gave chase. She was able to capture the first ship successfully, but while she was chasing the second, she disappeared from view and was never seen again. On April 14th, the Confederacy had a similar mission of escorting merchantmen. She spotted a large enemy frigate headed towards their direction. It turned out to be the Roebuck, a 44-gun British frigate. The Confederacy wasn't a match against the Roebuck, so to protect the merchantmen, she positioned herself between the merchant ships and the Roebuck and held her position to give the convoy a chance to escape. As the Roebuck approached, the Confederacy lowered her colors without a fight, and she was taken by the British. However, her surrender wasn't in vain, and the merchant ships had enough time to flee. Marine detachments were only on the Trumbull, the Dean, and the Alliance, and each ship was dealing with their own problems. The Trumbull was under construction, the Dean was in Boston but lacked a sufficient crew, and the Alliance was facing the difficulties of Landis which made recruiting more challenging. Permission was granted to take volunteers from the guard at Castle William to compensate for the lack of recruits. Despite approval from the Navy Board, nobody stationed at Castle Williams volunteered for service. Military leaders grew desperate, and they found themselves recruiting from British prisoners of war again. The Marine officers were still on board the Alliance, and Captain Matthew Park, Lieutenant Thomas Elwood, and Lieutenant James Elwood helped recruit. They were able to recruit a new lieutenant, Samuel Pritchard, to help lead the detachment as well. It took months, but by February, the Alliance had a crew of 226 men. She set sail and captured a couple of prizes during her trek. On March 29th, she started to head back to port. But soon after she sailed, another mutiny was exposed. They planned to take the ship on its return voyage and kill all but one of the officers. The men were locked up and the Alliance continued its trip back to the States. On April 2nd, she encountered two enemy vessels and prepared for the attack. The enemy ships were the Minerva and the Mars, which was considered to be the fastest ship in Europe. The Alliance won that battle, but ended up taking substantial damage. She was able to capture both ships but on her way back to port, encountered gale force winds and severe lightning attacks. This intense weather lasted for five days, which resulted in the two prizes being swept away. The Alliance also suffered from a lightning strike hitting the main topmast and caused significant damage, killing more than 12 men and burning the skin off several others. She continued to sail for port, but would run into more British ships on May 27th. The Alliance would attack first with the broadside. The wind wasn't in the Americans' favor, and the two smaller enemy vessels were able to outmaneuver the Alliance. Her quarterdeck was raked with grape shot, and the British sailors and Marines were accurate with their musket fire. The Continental Marines had no protection from the incoming rounds and took heavy fire. A six-pound cannonball crushed the head of newly recruited Lieutenant Samuel Pritchard. Lieutenant James Warren was shot in the leg, which would eventually result in an amputation, and Sergeant David Brewer was shot in the head. Captain Barry, commander of the Alliance, 
was shot in the shoulder and headed below deck. The colors followed Barry and lowered as he made his way below. The British took this as a sign of surrender. They started to cheer at the sight of the struck colors, but Americans weren't done fighting yet. As the British were celebrating, a new continental flag was raised and the Marines began firing at the British again. The wind started to pick up and the Alliance was able to turn and her entire starboard cannons were ready to fire on the two ships. All it took was one broadside to bring down the colors for one of the British sloops. The other sloop was able to fight through the first volley, but she surrendered as well after the Alliance fired her second broadside. At the end of the battle, the Alliance suffered five deaths and 22 wounded. The two British sloops had a combined death count of 11 and 25 wounded. After lots of bad luck and overcoming overwhelming odds, the Alliance pulled into port on June 6th. She was missing a mainyard, her sails were peppered with holes, and she had significant damage to her body. Captain Barry immediately went to the Navy board in Boston, and he urged them to sheathe the bottom of the ship in copper. He previously requested this upgrade to Benjamin Franklin before the ship was sent out on her mission, but Franklin denied his request due to the high cost. Barry argued that the cost to repair the vessel would exceed the cost to add the copper. After seeing the damage, the Navy board agreed to Barry's request and fitted the Alliance for copper. The Trumbull sailed on August 8th but her four topmasts and mainmasts were severely damaged due to a storm. As the storm receded, three British ships would spot her and close in for the attack. The enemy would capture the Trumbull without much of a fight. She was sent to a British port in New York, forgotten, and slowly rotted away. Americans took a lot of losses, and it started to have a financial impact. Funds were short, but fortunately, France would come to the rescue once more. Louis XVI sent the frigate La Resolve to Boston, carrying two and a half million crowns. Marine Captain Samuel Nicholas was called back into service for a top-secret mission. He was to escort this money to Philadelphia, but before the voyage would begin, about one and a half million crowns were exchanged for bills for safety and to lessen the weight of the shipment. The remaining crowns were stored in chests made of oak, each containing 1,500 to 2,000 coins in each box. They would travel by land and were heavily guarded. The route was specific. The funds would travel from Boston to Worcester to Springfield to Greenwood to Salisbury to Fishkill to New Windsor to Sussex Courthouse to Easton and finally to Pennsylvania. Fortunately for Nicholas and the rest of the escort, the voyage was pretty uneventful, and the treasure arrived in Philadelphia on November 6th. Nicholas was invited to serve on a board that would investigate the loss of the Trumbull, but he respectfully refused this position and resumed his life as a tavern keeper for the Conestoga wagon. This was Nicholas's last mission he performed as a Marine officer. As 1781 came to an end, the number of Continental Marines serving was the lowest it has been during the entire war. Within two years, seven ships were lost, which included almost 200 Marines. Continental Marines now served only on two vessels, the Alliance and the Dean. 
However, there are two other types of Marine forces available to help out, privateer Marines and state Marines. During our next episode, we'll explore these two lesser known types of Marines, as well as the activities from the Marines serving on board the last two Continental frigates. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we discuss two other Marine forces rarely talked about, privateer Marines and state Marines. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.